In Luke chapter 10, this expert in the Old Testament scriptures comes up to Jesus and asks him a question. He says, teacher, what is it that I have to do to inherit eternal life? What's funny is Jesus responds how he so often responds. He, he answers his question with a question of his own. He says, look, you know what the scriptures tell you. You answer me. What does it say? So the man responded, it says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Now you have to go live it out. But the man wasn't satisfied to stay there. In fact, he continued by asking Jesus a very pointed question. It says in verse 29, wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? In other words, look, I know I'm supposed to love people, but tell me, who is it that I'm supposed to love? What's interesting is that Jesus doesn't respond to the question of who to neighbor. Instead, what he does is he shows us how to neighbor. He takes his question and places it on a dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. Instead of giving him a theological definition, he gives us a life situation. And he sets forth a specific pattern for how to neighbor with the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, most of us are probably familiar with this story, but let me tell you how it happened. You see, there was this Jewish guy who was going along to Jericho when a band of robbers come and beat him, take his belongings, and leave him for dead. It just so happens that there was also a priest on his way down the same street, but when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. Essentially, what he was saying is that it was easier to avoid the problem altogether than to get close to it and have to deal with it. And the thing is, this guy probably felt justified because if this man was dead, and if the priest were to have touched him or even if he would have gotten near him, he would have been unable to go to the temple that day and perform his job duties. In his mind, it would have just cost him too much to help this poor guy. Fortunately though, there was another man, a Levite, now, a Levite was a religious person in the Jewish culture responsible for spiritual leadership. Now, the Levite might also have had responsibilities in the temple that day, except that the scripture says they were traveling from Jerusalem. So it's implied that he's just finished his worship. And yet, this religious person also passes the man by. It's this picture of those who have all the forms of worship and a relationship with God but never let it flow out into their lives so it affects others. Then Jesus says three words. And when he said these three words, it would have been jaw-droppingly shocking to his audience. He said, but a Samaritan. Now last week, I mentioned to you about the division and hatred between Jews and Samaritans, but it might be helpful to realize that this hatred had been going on for 700 years. They had a pattern of problems and a pattern of prejudice. But despite the preconceived feelings the Jews would have had towards the Samaritan, this Samaritan did one simple act. What did he do? Instead of walking away from the man, he walked towards him. 
he demonstrated love to another human being. And even though he was from a different race, even though he had a different belief system, even though he had a different theology, even though they didn't see the world the same way, this guy showed love to a man that was in need. It says that the Samaritan went to the victim, bandaged his wounds, put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Now, what was the difference? What was it that caused the good religious people to avoid the situation? And what caused the Samaritan to get in the middle of it? We don't know for sure, but I bet the first question the priest and the Levite asked was if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But what I see in the text is that the Samaritan, he must have asked a different question. I think he reversed it and said, if I don't stop and help this man, what's gonna happen to him? This, in so many ways, is the heart of the gospel. It's loving God and loving others. It's leaving where we're comfortable to help someone who's in need even if they're different from us, and some might argue, especially if they're different from us. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside. That will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. We celebrate Dr. King, but we often celebrate him at the wrong level because we celebrate his speeches and we celebrate his accomplishments. But Dr. King's life was not about speeches and awards. It was about standards. We'll listen to I Have a Dream but a dream without action and a dream without process and a dream without justice is a delusion. So it's okay to speak up and to say that things are not all right. And the truth is, I'm concerned that we approach Jesus much the same way. We like his teachings and we like his tenets, but we don't wanna live his standards. We just wanna like his sayings. But to follow Jesus is to align ourselves to his way of doing things, to follow his pattern. We can't look for anyone else to set our standards. We have to look to Jesus. And what we see when we look to Jesus is that he came into our world, a world full of conflict and strife and division and hatred. He came into our world full of all of that and he got right in the middle of it. Many of you around, when I have to meet my day, I don't want a long and if you get somebody to deliver the eulogy, tell them not to talk to you. Every now and then I wonder what I want them to say. Tell them not to mention that I have a Nobel Peace Prize. That isn't important. Tell them not to mention that I have three or four hundred other awards. That's not important. Tell them not to mention where I went to school. I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. I want you to say that day that I tried to be right on the walkway. I want you to be able to say that day 
that I did try to feed the hungry. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to clothe those who were naked. I want you to say on that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major. Say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. That's all I want to say. If I can help somebody as I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a word of song, if I can show somebody he's traveling wrong, then my living will not be in vain. If I can do my duty as a Christian, if I can bring salvation to a world once wrong, if I can spread the message as the master taught, then my living will not be in vain. Jesus recognized the need for standing in the gap between two extremes. That's why he made it a point to model for us the attitude that we should take when we find ourselves pulled in opposite directions. We see an example of this in some of the instructions that he gave his disciples. Because he knew his disciples would face a difficult and hostile world, he knew that they would encounter resistance that people would always want to pull them away from their purpose. So before he sent them out, he said to them, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now I admit, it's pretty difficult to imagine a single person simultaneously having the characteristics of a serpent and a dove. But essentially what he's saying is they needed to have a tough mind and a tender heart. You see, when Jesus told his disciples to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, he was laying down a general principle about the technique necessary for kingdom work. And as we strive to bring in peace to a hostile world, we need to be wise but blameless. We need thick skin but a soft touch. Dr. King said it this way, the greatness of our God lies in the fact that he is both tough-minded and tender-hearted. He has qualities both of austerity and greatness. He is tough in his justice and tender in his love and grace. He has two outstretched arms. One is strong enough to surround us with justice and one is gentle enough to embrace us with grace. This onward push to the end of self-fulfillment is the end of a person's life. Now, don't stop here, though. You know, a lot of people get no further in life than the length. They, they develop their inner powers. They do their jobs well. You know, they try to live as if nobody else lives in the world but themselves. And they use everybody as mere tools get to where they're going. 
They don't love anybody but themselves. And the only kind of love that they really have for other people is utilitarian love. You know, they just love people that they can use. A lot of people never get beyond the first dimension of life. They use other people as mere steps by which they can climb to their goals and their ambitions. These people don't work out well in life. They may go for a while. They may think they're making it all right. But there is a law. They call it the law of gravitation in the physical universe. And it works. It's final. It's inexorable. Whatever goes up can come down. You shall reap what you sow. God has structured this universe that way. And he who goes through life not concerned about others will be a subject victim of this law. So I move on and say that it is necessary to add breath to length. Now, the breath of life is the outward concern for the welfare of others, as I said. Man has not begun to live until he can rise above the narrow confines of his own individual concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. The pattern that Jesus models for us is a dangerous one. When you look at his life, you see that he willingly traveled hazardous roads for the cause he was called to. And as we set out on this pathway toward peacemaking, I'm reminded about how God brought the Israelites out of a land of injustice and into a land of abundance. You're probably familiar with the story. God used Moses to bring them out of Egypt and he later used Joshua to bring them into the land of promise. But on the border between the wilderness where they wandered and God's promised land of something better, there was a river called the Jordan River that separated the two places. I can only imagine what this must have been like for the nation of Israel to see the place God was leading them to just on the other side of this river. I mean, I bet they couldn't wait to cross over and leave behind everything the wilderness represented in their lives. But it happened in a very specific way. In fact, even when they were traveling in the wilderness, what you see is that God required the priests and the Levites to always be out in front of the people. You see, the priests and the Levites were the leaders. They were the ones who carried the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence. But God makes a very interesting command to his people before the nation crosses over. You find it in Joshua chapter 3. And this is what God says. He says, tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Now, this seems crazy because the priests are the ones who are supposed to lead the way. I mean, surely God would want them to cross over to the other side and show the people how it's done. It doesn't make any sense that God would instruct them to stand in the gap between these two extremes to stand in the gap between the wilderness and the promised land, to stand between the place that they were leaving and the place that God was calling them into. But in verse 17, it tells us what happened. It says, 
Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan. And all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. You see, the people who helped the nation cross over didn't shout from the other side. They got in the middle. And that's where God's presence was. And in the same way that the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant, our job as Christ followers is to carry God's presence into every place that we go into. My point is, so many times we think we're leading, but we're actually leaving. We leave people behind and we leave people stuck because we're not willing to stand in the place that's uncomfortable until everyone can cross over. You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better path? Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. You speak of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. But we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice. Standing in the middle is hard, but what if that's exactly the place that Jesus wants us to stand firm so that everyone else can enter into his best? Yes, it's awkward and yes, it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it's even painful but it was necessary so that we could be able to enter into the life Jesus was so graciously drawing us into. And what we often miss when we try to prove our point is that we can never help anyone when we're shouting from the sidelines. That's why we need to move past the walls we put up and move past the place where we've guarded ourselves and into a space where we can help. Are there standards we should hold? Yes, absolutely. But where we stand is in the middle, because in the middle is the space where God can move. Christ came to show us the way. Men love darkness rather than the light. They crucified him. There on Good Friday on the cross, it was still dark. But then Easter came, and Easter is an eternal reminder of the fact truth crushed earth will rise again. Easter justifies Carlisle in saying no lie can live forever. And so this is our faith. And as we continue to hope for peace on earth and goodwill toward men, let us know that in the process we have cosmic companionship. When I look at scripture, what I see is that God is more concerned about providing a place than proving a point. I see this when Jesus was hanging on the cross in the middle of two criminals. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus, but the criminal on the other side rebuked him. He said, hey man, don't you fear God? We're punished justly for our sins. 
but this man, he hasn't done anything wrong. And then he turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It was at this point that Jesus answered him and said, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. This is a picture of the penalty of our sin and the grace that God offers. God didn't look down from heaven at our sin and tell us to come up to his level. No, he sent his son to meet us where we were at. And I wonder if you can stand in the middle like Jesus, between those who believe and those who don't, between those who are right and those who are wrong, between those you agree with and those who disagree with you. I wonder, can you stand in the middle like Jesus and not lose your character and not lose your purpose? Because you know you can't give up in life. If you lose hope somehow, you lose that vitality that keeps life moving. You lose that courage to be, that quality that helps you to go on in spite of. So today I still have a dream. Men will rise up, come to see that they are made to live together as brothers. I still have a dream this morning that one day every Negro in this country, every colored person in the world will be judged on the basis of the content of his character rather than the color of his skin. And every man will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. I still have a dream today. One day the idle industries of Appalachia will be revitalized. Empty stomachs of Mississippi will be filled and brotherhood will be more than a few words at the end of a prayer, but the first order of business on every legislative agenda. I still have a dream today. One day, justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I still have a dream today. And in all of our state houses and city halls, men will be elected to go there who will do justly love mercy and walk humbly with their God. I still have a dream today that one day war will come to an end, that men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations will no longer rise up against nations, neither will they study war anymore. I still have a dream today that one day the lamb and the lion will lie down together and every man will sit under his own vine and fig tree and none shall be afraid. I still have a dream today that one day every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill will be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. I still have a dream this faith, we will be able to adjourn the counsels of despair and bring new light into the dark chambers of pessimism. With this faith, we will be able to speed up the day, and there will be peace on earth.
We have a God-given responsibility to pursue peace. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 7.15, God has called you to peace. So does that mean we just agree with everything other people say? No, of course not. Sometimes we're going to disagree. But God calls us to be bridge builders and make a way for people to cross over. So how do we do that? Well, I think one of the best ways is found in the Old Testament prophecy given by Zechariah. These are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. I love those words spoken by the prophet Zechariah. I want to read them to you again. It says, these are the things you shall do. Speak each man truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Now in ancient times, the cities were well guarded and around the cities were two gates, an outer gate and an inner gate. The outer gate is what everyone saw. It was the wall around the city with a gate for an entrance. The inner gate served as a second line of defense. But it was between these two gates that the action happened. It was like the marketplace of the day. Between these gates is where transactions would be made. Between these gates, negotiations would happen. It was between these two gates where justice was supposed to be served. Not outside the gates, but between the gates. But I've noticed a lot of us want to live our lives outside the gates. We watch events unfold, but never take responsibility for outcomes. We set up walls to insulate us from the places where we'd have to make difficult decisions, and we stay in the places that are most convenient for our ego, all while we never confront the issues that sabotage our souls. And sometimes the temptation is not exactly to run away, but to disengage. And I'm concerned that in our culture today, we can look engaged on the surface and be disengaged in our souls because some of our greatest struggles come when we become passive and disengaged. So when Zechariah calls them to give judgment in the gates, he's calling them to action because it's the place of responsibility. It was between the gates where prophets like Amos would prophesy to maintain justice. It was between the gates where Ruth was claimed by Boaz, where he established the agreement in the presence of 10 witnesses. It was between the gates when Abraham purchased a burial site for Sarah. He completed the transaction in front of witnesses in the gates. It's where the witnesses were. It's where the judges would sit. And it's where we're supposed to be. So Zechariah spoke up to remind them to take their place, to stand in the middle, to speak for truth, to speak for justice, and to speak for peace. We have some challenging days ahead, some great and noble opportunities to make this beautiful city that sits on the banks of Lake Michigan, the beautiful city of brotherhood that it is called to be. I say sincerely that the white persons who believe in justice, who believe in humanity, are going to stay with this movement. I've said before they're going to stay with it because it's just and right. My Jewish brothers and sisters said to me amid anti-Semitism anywhere that we don't need 
your support, we have enough Jewish power to deal with this problem ourselves. I would still take a stand against anti-Semitism because it's wrong, it's unjust, and it's evil. If my Catholic brothers and sisters said to me, amid bigotry toward Catholics, we don't need your support in this because we have enough Catholic power to deal with it, I would still take a stand against bigotry toward Catholics because it is wrong, it is evil, and it is unjust. What I'm saying to you this morning, my friend, even if it falls your lot to be a street sweep, go on out in sweet streets like Michelangelo painted Pete's picture. Sweet streets like Handel and Beethoven composed music. Sweet streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweet streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lives a great street sweeper who swept his job well. If you can't be a pine on the top of a hill, be a scrub in the valley, but be the best little scrub on the side of the real. Be a bush if you can't be a tree. If you can't be a highway, just be a trail. If you can't be the sun, be a star. It isn't by size that you win or you fail. Be the best of whatever you are. As Christians, we need to recognize where our strength comes from. If the source of our strength comes from what people think about us, how people treat us, we're quickly going to find that we're always susceptible to the elements. When we make God the source of our strength, we're saying we depend on Him. But we can't expect God's strength if we don't embrace God's standards. We can't expect God to give us unity if we don't embrace his standard of equality. Whenever we allow inequality and prejudice, stereotypes and oppression to go unchecked, and then we try and ask God to make us one, we are violating the very principle that creates unity. But when we stand in the place that God has called us, that middle space, the space between the gates, the center, he promises to be our source of strength. In fact, I like what Paul wrote about this in his letter to the church at Rome. He said, who then will condemn us? Will Christ? No, for he is the one who died for us and came back to life again for us and is sitting at the place of highest honor next to God pleading for us there in heaven. See, it's not about living up to a standard. It's about living out of a standard. And that's the pattern that Jesus models for us to stand in the middle. One translation actually puts it this way, that Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Now that word intercede, it literally means to go between. It's talking about someone who stands in the middle to make a way for someone else. So that's why I wanna challenge you this week, not to take a stand, but on where to stand. Because where we are to stand is at the center of justice and where we are to stand is at the center of truth. And even though standing at the center is uncomfortable, that's precisely where we're supposed to stand. We're supposed to stand in the gap.